So I'm going to speak about uh, Jesus the Good Shepherd, which just seems a bit trad, doesn't it? It's a bit old-fashioned, but uh, it's just such a loved kind of image of Jesus, is, is it not? Like, uh, I know this is not a stained glassy kind of church, but so many stained glass images of Jesus the Good Shepherd and paintings and songs and poems. And if you do a Google image search, it's like all Jesus the Good Shepherd pictures have Jesus cradling some pathetic little lamb in his arms, right? Or, or ra- even wrapped around his shoulders. Like, it kind of speaks to this idea of, like, Jesus' attentiveness to the one lost soul. So it's sort of a, a, a lovely pastoral, tender kind of understanding of kind of Jesus' ministry to the lost. Except the fact is, when Jesus referred to himself as a good shepherd, that's not what he had in mind. We get that idea of Jesus, the good shepherd with the one lost lamb, from a parable that he told. Uh, That's in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. All three synoptics have that parable where Jesus talks about a shepherd who leaves the 99 safe sheep to go and rescue the one lost sheep. And yeah, he's referring to himself. So it's not inappropriate to think, well, that's about him. He cares for the one lost soul. That's true. But when he refers to himself as the good shepherd, that's John chapter 10. And what he's doing in John chapter 10 is very different to the idea of tenderness or pastoral care or interest in the individual lost one. He's actually speaking very powerfully about the distinction between healthy faith and toxic religion. And in order to understand what he says in John chapter 10, before I read that passage to you, we have to understand its context because that makes perfect sense of the whole thing. So what happens immediately preceding Jesus' teaching, about half a chapter's worth of teaching about himself as the good shepherd, is probably, on the one hand, one of the most beautiful, and on the other hand, one of the most infuriating stories in the Gospels. John chapter 9, the whole chapter pretty much is taken up telling the story of the healing of a man born blind. Do you remember this story? It's It's a staged, long, kind of convoluted miracle. Jesus encounters a man who has been born blind and he heals him. Now, we know from reading the Gospels, Jesus can just like cast some messianic magic over someone and heal them straight away, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't even have to touch them to heal them. And when the centurion says, could you heal my servant? You don't have to come, just say the word. Done. A woman reaches out and touches the hem of his cloak, healed. Like, you know, we know he can just like do it like that. But in this instance, he doesn't do it like that. In this instance, he stages this healing. And I think he does it for a very express purpose. This man is, firstly, let's remember this, born blind. Didn't go blind, doesn't have glaucoma, didn't have an accident, born blind. Now, these days, for people who are partially sighted or blind, we do all that we can in our society to ensure that they get an education and make a a contribution uh, to society. But can you imagine what it's like in the first century? Born blind? Like no education, no trade, no job, no possibility of any such job, no wife, no children. Uh, As a grown man still living with your parents, I know that's very normal in Australia, but (laughs) first century Israel, like that that was, you couldn't even imagine the shame associated with a man having to be still living with his parents. Um, He is in many respects, whilst a grown man, and not intellectually impaired, but nonetheless really like a child in society. 
disconnected from mainstream male culture. He wouldn't be interacting with other men, talking about business or farming or anything. He is spending his time under his parents' care or, as we first encountering, encounter him, uh, begging for alms. And God forbid, when his older parents should pass away, who knows what would happen to this person. I mean, basically left to his own devices. It's a cruel, harsh kind of world. So Jesus encounters him and heals him. But not, you're healed. He spits in the dust. Do you remember this story? Turns it into a muddy kind of paste, rubs it on the eyes of this man, and then says, now, blind man, make your way to the pool of Shalom. It's a bit mean. <laughs> wash the waters off, wash the mud off there in the waters of the pool, and you will be healed. Now, why does he do it? Well, I think he's doing it to attract a crowd. I think Jesus is showing off, if you don't mind me saying so. Think about it. Everyone knows this man. He's well known in our community. He was the little baby that was born blind. And we all thought, oh man, what did his parents do to deserve that? He's the little boy who was blind. He's the teenager who was blind. He's now the man who, we all know him. We give him arms. We feel sorry for his parents. Everyone knows him. So when Jesus does this kind of pretty showy thing with the mud and all that, everyone's like, what? What's going on? And then as he's being helped, because he wouldn't make his own way, as he's being helped to the pool of Shalom, could you imagine people like, what's going on? Where's he going? What's the mud? What's happening? A crowd would start to gather and they would follow him all the way to the pool. And when they get there, everyone would be like, what's with this? What's happening? It's like, well, this guy from Nazareth, he did the mud thing and he's going to wash it off. Now, like, could you imagine? Soon it's a big crowd that would have gathered. And when he washes the mud off, the stories must have been told over and over because John actually includes like some funny little details like when he washes the, the mud off and now he can see, he blinks light into his eyes and he says it's as if people look like trees walking around. He didn't know what trees looked like, did he? He didn't know what people looked like. There's this kind of thing like he, he has no idea what it is that he's seeing right now. Those stories must have got told and told and told, which is why John has managed to collect them up for us. It was like a big kind of moment and as a result it gets a big reaction you see up until this point the pharisees were able to dismiss jesus as some kind of snake oil salesman from up north like he's no big deal don't worry about it and when they say oh but he heals people they could easily have said who did he heal like some simpleton up in the countryside what, what story you know they believe anything out there those probably aren't really healings, just simple country folk believing rubbish. But now Jesus has brought his power right to the doorstep of the Pharisees. Now there are lots of witnesses. Now in an urban community, people are talking. They cannot deny the fact that this man was blind, everyone knows him, and that he's standing right here and he can see. And so no longer able to explain away that probably wasn't a miracle, they then come up with a different strategy. And it's a despicable strategy. They decide that what they will do is, not able to deny the miracle, they will cast aspersions on where Jesus' power comes from. It couldn't be from Yahweh that he heals these people because he's speaking rubbish and teaching untruth. So, of course, the power he uses to heal people is a deceptive power. It comes from a demonic force. And here's how they go about trying to make this case. They haul the man who has been healed before a religious tribunal. I had to give a defence of my doctorate once, and I was terrified. 
Could you imagine what a childlike man who's never held a job, never written anything, never read anything, a highly socially marginal person, brought before a tribunal of the most educated and sophisticated religious people in society. Could you imagine how intimidating that would be? This is religious abuse. This is akin to what we do to rape victims when they testify at their attackers' trials. We put the victim on trial. It's despicable. It's unconscionable. It's bullying. It's humiliating. And this is done in the name of Yahweh. They bring this simple man and they say, you tell us, where do you think Jesus got the power to heal you from? I don't know what they're thinking. Is he going to say, I felt some demonic force as the light came into my eyes? What are they imagining that he will say? What could he say? And if you read John chapter 9 again, you'll find all of his answers. Some people think that they're kind of snarky or smart-alecky. They sound like the answers a child would give. He says, I don't know. All I know is I used to be blind and now I can see. And they continue to berate him and to harass him to the point where he says, why are you asking so many questions? Like, do you want to follow him too? I don't think he's being a smart aleck. I think it's like, really, you think you're into him as well, right? And in the end they say, ah, be gone with you. You're like a child. Bring his parents in here. And this was, this was intentional. When you ask someone's parents to speak on behalf of a grown man, you're dismissing that man as a child. And so his parents come in and they say, you speak on his behalf, where do you think Jesus got the power from to heal your son? And John tells us that they knew the power must have come from God. But so terrified were they of the religious leadership of Israel, they lied and they said... I don't know. My friends, this is an example of what we call toxic religion, is it not? It's the kind of thing that you find in cults and things like that and fundamentalist churches. It's where people live in terror of the leadership. It's where we have rules and lines for who's in and who's out. It's where we bully the weak. It's where people accrue power to themselves through special knowledge and the like. It's despicable and it's disgusting. And it's the absolute opposite of everything that the faith of Israel was meant to be about, right? The faith of Israel was meant to be about we, as a whole nation of people, are in covenant with God. A covenant that actually leads to flourishing, human wholeness. That in this covenant with God, even though every other nation in the whole world is sacrificing babies, human sacrifices, misogyny, cruelty, war, abuse, violence, darkness... Even though the, 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 the physically disabled, children, women, the elderly are cast out, it's brutalising, harsh, dark world. In the middle of it all, this one nation would appear in covenant with Yahweh, no human sacrifices, women treated with respect, justice, righteousness, light. It was the most magnificent vision of what human society should look like. And what have the Pharisees done to it? Through their own fear, their own greed and their hunger for power, they had turned it into toxic religion based on rules and fear and anxiety. So at the end of chapter 9, Jesus appears back in the narrative. And you know this is not going to go well for the Pharisees. 
Jesus makes one of those classic, like John's gospel kind of statements where he says, oh, well, I have come so that the blind may see and those who see may be made blind. Do you know how John's got lots of those kind of statements? Like the first will be last and the last will be first. And you have sent me and I've sent you and he's sent me. And said, you, know, you know all that stuff? Or read John's gospel. It's like... <laughs> I have come so that the blind may see and those who see may be made blind. And the Pharisees are there and they're like, whoa, wait a second. Uh, are you talking about us? And he, well, he is talking about them. But he turns to them. And the last verse of chapter 9 he says... If you were blind, you would not be guilty of the thing that you have done. You wouldn't know any better. But because you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. He's steamed. It's in that context of him poking the finger in the chests of the Pharisees, that he then goes on to talk about being the good shepherd. The good shepherd isn't an affirmation of gentleness and pastoral care. It's him comparing himself to the leadership of Israel. It's him comparing what he's calling people to, to the toxic religion that they are, are become purveyors of. So have a look at John chapter 10. Just forget that there's a big 10 there uh, and, a, and a number one. This should just flow straight out of him accusing them and being guilty of, um, of blindness. Uh, in John chapter 10, verse 1, I'll read what he then goes on to say. Speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In brackets, you Pharisees. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. And in verse 6, uh, John tells us the Pharisees did, had no clue what he was talking about. So Jesus reiterates in verse 7, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now the metaphors move and shift. Sometimes Jesus is the gate, sometimes he's the shepherd. There's references to thieves and robbers and wolves. But in effect, the picture that emerges is this. This magnificent vision of what it was meant to be, to be in covenant relationship with Yahweh. You, Pharisees, have turned it into like a sheep pen. You have penned the people of Israel, the sheep, into this sheep pen. If any of you know anything about sheep, and I don't, but I actually had a shepherd tell me about this, sheep hate to be in sheep pens. 
Like sheep pens, it's just all dirt and mud and sheep droppings, right? In fact, uh, I've had a shepherd tell me that he's seen sheep almost break their necks trying to get out of a sheep pen. A shepherd, in the first century at least, only ever shepherds the flock into the pen at the point of darkness and releases them uh, as soon as uh, uh, the sun rises uh, in, in order to protect them from predatory animals at night. That's not where sheep are meant to be. They might feel safe there, but it's not life as it was intended to be. It's just for their own good. What Jesus is saying is, you have turned Israel into a pen. You've walled them in. They're terrified of you. You are like a stranger. You come and speak to them as if you're their shepherd. They don't even recognise your voice. Worse than that, you're like a robber. You pick them off, this poor man who was born blind and his parents. You're like thieves. I mean, it's brutal kind of teaching, right? I mean, he's ripping into them. What was intended to be a magnificent new way of being human, you have turned it into fear-based religion. They're breaking their necks to get out of there. But I am the gate. I am the shepherd. When I call their name, something rings true in their lives. They hear it and they know it. This is our shepherd. And I lead them out. Faith in Jesus is about freedom. I lead them out to pastures where they can roam and eat and be free as they are intended to. Don't think of being in the pen as about being safe. Think about being in the pen as being crushed. That's not what God intended for Israel. And Jesus says, I have come to lead them out so that they may have life and life to the full. That's what it means to be a good shepherd. So the emphasis in that passage is not, I am the good shepherd, it's I am the good shepherd. Stop listening to all these bad shepherds. Where do you get your head around this idea that the faith that Jesus was calling us to was one of freedom and responsibility and hope and peace and justice and reconciliation? Then you reread John's Gospel and you discover, well, of course, it's all the way through John's Gospel that this is what he does. I mean, how does John's gospel tell us that Jesus' ministry began? With a public miracle. And what was the first miracle that Jesus performs in John's gospel? John chapter 2, water into wine. That's not a party trick, you know. That's not just like helping a guy out. That was a very intentional miracle. Just like rubbing the mud on that guy's eyes and making him go through that whole process, it was very intentional. Jesus and his mother attend a, 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 a wedding in Cana. And uh, they run out of wine. We just think, oh, inconvenient. But it wasn't inconvenient. It was a matter of huge social embarrassment. Everyone at that time knew that when a, a man's wife gave birth to a girl, the first thing that man would do, the new father would do, would be to go to his reserves of table wine, which was like vinegary sort of table wine. You just slosh your meals down with. Doesn't taste great, but who cares? You would draw off a barrel of that wine and you would put it aside on the day of her birth. And then every year on her birthday, you would draw off another, table, another barrel of table wine, put it aside, until on the day when she was married, she might be 15, 16 years of age, you've got 15 or 16 barrels of wine ready for her wedding. Some of it still tastes like vinegar, but some of it is 16 years old. It tastes like... South Australian Cabernet. <laughs> and of course, at the wedding banquet, 
the master of ceremonies cracks the oldest barrel of wine first and we all dip our cups into it. And then the master of ceremonies says, let's drink to the father of the bride who has so assiduously prepared for this day out of love for his daughter. And we'd all go, here's to the father of the bride. <laughs> and our taste buds would tell us how much this man loves his daughter. And then we would work our way through 16 barrels of wine. <laughs> Either this particular wedding was especially raucous, having worked their way through the whole 16 barrels, or this father didn't prepare assiduously for his daughter's wedding. Either way, they're out of wine. So whereas this man might be known for preparing perfectly for his daughter's wedding, which would indicate you are a truly great father of daughters, this man would forever be known as, oh yeah, I remember your, your daughter's wedding. No shame on the daughter, the shame's on the father. So Mary turns to Jesus in this situation and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now I've often wondered how many times Mary might have pulled this line <laughs> during Jesus' you know, early years. What do you think? Like, there's a fate at the synagogue, I need to bake scones. <laughs> I'm out of flour, Jesus. <laughs> but how many times did Jesus have to say, Mom, I told you no. But when she pulls it this time, oh, shame, this poor man, they've run out of wine. Jesus knows this is the perfect time because he spies in the corner these great barrels, these great um, uh, earthenware jugs of water. Not just drinking water. Can't drink that stuff. That water is kept for purification rites by holy Jews. Now think about what that means. That means whenever a Jew is contaminated by a Gentile, they have to say certain prayers, ceremoniously wash all the Gentileness off themselves and be made holy again. If you do a tran business transaction with a Gentile, if you touch a Gentile, if you encounter a Gentile, you are unclean. Go, do the washing, say the special prayers, you're made right again. In other words, those huge earthenware jugs of water are symbols of what? Of separation, of controlling religion, of the sheep pen, are they not? That water is a symbol of the fact that there are Jews and there are Gentiles. There are the chosen and the unchosen. There's the in and the out. There's the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. It's a line in the sand, ruling people out, rejecting people. And when Jesus sees that and hears his mother ask, do something about this situation, Jesus realises this is the perfect way for me to show my hand and start my ministry. He turns symbols of religious separation into wine, which is universally known as a symbol of hospitality and welcome. It begins with water into wine and then it continues as he speaks to a Samaritan woman and ultimately commissions her to go and preach the gospel as he affirms a centurion, as he continues to engage with outsiders like the unclean, like lepers, like tax collectors. You see him continue, all he's doing all the time is turning water into wine touching the unclean and making it clean, taking the excluded and including them. Then he gets to John chapter 10 where he explains it. 
I'm not doing what they do. Listen to my voice. You know that this is what you were born to. And it continues all the way to the passion narrative so that at the point at which he offers his life for the sheep, as he said he would in John chapter 10, the point at which he gives up his spirit on the cross, the ultimate symbol of separation, more than, than, than water used for purification rites, the ultimate symbol of separation, of the fact that some are in and others are out, that enormous curtain in the Holy of Holies in the temple is rent from top to bottom. And if you're reading the gospel through carefully, when you get to that point, you would think, of course, of course this is how it would end. If it began with water into wine, this thing like a snowball would continue until the ultimate symbol of separation is torn to shreds. This is what it means to follow the good shepherd. So how could any of us, I'm not accusing you of doing this, but how could any of us in Jesus' name try to turn him into the mascot of toxic religion? How could you create churches where you rule certain people out? How could you decide who's in and who's out? How could you have ministers who terrify people? We can't say what we really think for fear that we'll be excommunicated or shamed or ridiculed. You know that there have been Christian churches that have pulled this stunt, don't you? How could they do that in the name of the one who said, I am the good shepherd. When they hear my voice, I lead them out to life to the full. My friends, if we claim to say that we follow the new covenant that's offered to us by the good shepherd, then surely we embrace everything that Israel tried to embrace but failed at. Justice, reconciliation, wholeness, beauty, healing, peacemaking, hospitality, generosity. Do you follow? As soon as they start ruling lines and telling you who's in and who's out, you know where that leads to? Where hardly anyone's in and everyone's out. I live in Manly in Sydney, which is a kind of touristy sort of place, and so I was in a cafe in our neighbourhood once and there's an American tourist at the next table with his wife and they were looking at maps and... And they turned to me and said, Do you, are you a local? I said, yeah, I'm a local. And they, and they asked me for some information about something, which I gave them. They seemed nice, lovely American tourists. And then uh, we chatted for a little bit and then he said, uh, um, do you mind, he said, uh, if I ask you a personal question? I thought at that point I could have said, well, this is Australia. We don't ask each other personal questions. <laughs> that's what you Americans do back wherever you come from. But I'm also Australian, which means I'm polite. So I said, no, of course, please ask me a personal question. And he said, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? And I said, well, actually, I do. Because I follow King Jesus. He's my saviour and my Lord. Oh, oh, that's awesome. Oh, great. So you're a Christian. And he did ask me, what church do you go to? I think he wanted to make sure, are you actually a Christian or not? But whatever. We chatted for a little bit and then I said, now, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No. He said, no, go right ahead. And I said, can you assure me, as much as I could assure you about going to, to be with the Lord for eternity, but can you assure me 
that you are filled with the spirit of the risen Christ and that you have bent your knee to him and are being propelled by him into the world to be an agent of his in the restoration and the renewal of all things in preparation for his return. Well, he said, yeah, but, but that's not actually the gospel. And I said, actually, what you asked me is part of the gospel. And what I asked you is part of the gospel too. Jesus didn't just die for us so that when we die, we get to go to heaven. As if what happens between now and then is immaterial, other than we have to kind of keep the rules. He died to fulfill the covenant. He died to do what Israel couldn't do. He died to tear open that curtain in the Holy of Holies. He died to throw open the gates of the sheep pen, to lead people out. He died so that he could call sheep from other pens to come and join in this international, multi-ethnic, global movement, this flock under this one shepherd. And he called us not just to wait until we die, but to be used as agents of his in the renewal, the restoration, the transformation, the rescue of all things on this planet. We are members of a new covenant, not a religious community. We're a family. Some here will limp. Some here are strong. Some here don't entirely understand. Others have great knowledge. Some of you are gifted in different ways and called in other ways. But as soon as we insist that everyone is like us, we've lost hold of the very thing he called us to be and to do. Do you follow? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep, not so they could return to a pen and live in fear, so that they could have life, have it to the full. 